Hello, and welcome back to Reformed, a podcast on the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. This is part two of our fourth episode, where we've been discussing the social theory concepts of panopticons and moral panics. Now, we're going to look at moral panics and how mass incarceration can be helped along by electoral politics. Panopticon can help us think about modern prisons, then the concept of a moral panic can help us explain the politics of incarceration. The online dictionary of the social sciences, created by Canada's Open University, says that a moral panic, quote, suggests a panic or overreaction to forms of deviance or wrongdoing believed to be threats to the moral order. Moral panics are usually framed by the media and led by community leaders or groups intent on changing laws or practices. Moral panics gather converts because they touch on people's fears and because they use specific events or problems as symbols of what many feel to represent all that is wrong with the nation. We can say that a moral panic, then, is a societal overreaction to a perceived threat. These supposed threats can be benign or actually harmful. Over the last 40 years, sociologists have identified five broad categories that most moral panics fall into. These are child abuse, drugs and alcohol, immigration, media technologies, and street crime. The social overreactions are often fueled by media coverage of a perceived problem. For instance, if local or national news channels start devoting large segments of their programming to the epidemic use of a new drug, the public might believe that the drug poses a major threat to their communities even if no concrete evidence suggests that the drug is being used in those communities. Other moral panics might arise out of community concerns. For instance, if parents believe that violent video games are harming their children and begin to advocate for the government to ban video games, officials and media outlets might follow public sentiment and strongly oppose violent video games. Moral panics operate very effectively in electoral political systems. Politicians, hoping to gain public support, oppose the threat raised by the panic. Similarly, by fear-mongering about specific political issues, some politicians can help spark or fuel moral panics. For instance, by claiming that drugs pose a massive threat to American safety and then running on an anti-drug platform, a politician can leverage widespread support, sometimes regardless of whether their claims are accurate or not. According to sociologists Eric Good and Nachman Ben Yehuda, when experiencing a moral panic, societies exhibit five distinct behaviors. They have increased concern about a certain group's behavior. They become increasingly hostile towards people who exhibit the supposed deviant behavior at the heart of the panic. There is widespread consensus that the behavior is a social threat, and the public response is disproportionate to the actual danger posed by the activity. Finally, the panic is volatile. It can appear almost instantly and disappear just as quickly. While the same issue at the heart of the panic can continue to occur, the process of media frenzy, political and public response, occurs in boom-and-bust cycles. All of this sociology is great, but how does it relate to the prison state? Let's go back to James Foreman Jr.'s book, Locking Up Our Own, 
that we discussed in the second episode of this podcast. In Locking Up Our Own, Foreman uses the history of marijuana legislation in Washington, D.C. to provide the perfect case study about moral panics and tough-on-crime politics in black communities. In the 1970s, D.C.'s Metropolitan Police Department began to rigorously enforce marijuana laws. From 1968 to 1975, the number of marijuana arrests increased by 900%. More than 80% of people arrested in D.C. for marijuana offenses during that time period were black. Contemporary articles and accounts say that police officers would routinely stop cars full of young black men without cause, then meticulously search the cars for drugs. If they found any marijuana in the car, anyone in the car would be taken in for marijuana possession. Prosecutors in D.C. were also much more likely to dismiss marijuana cases involving white offenders and to pursue ones involving black offenders. David Clark, a reform-minded white legislator in D.C., worked as the head of the city's Judiciary Committee to reform D.C.'s marijuana possession laws. Along with several of his black colleagues, Clark set forth a significant reform proposal to eliminate prison as a possible penalty for marijuana possession to significantly reduce possession fines, and to have police officers issue citations rather than make marijuana arrests. In order to pass that proposal, Clark needed the support of his colleagues and to convince them that marijuana arrests were a civil rights issue. The argument, with today's hindsight, seems clear. Police, judges, prosecutors, officials up and down the legal system were enforcing arrests and penalties more strongly for black D.C. residents than white D.C. residents. Knowing what we know today about mass incarceration, along with the role that racially disparate drug law enforcement played in creating that system, the marijuana reforms seem like a common-sense initiative, a logical solution to many of the issues facing D.C.'s black community. But D.C. was in the throes of an ongoing heroin crisis. The drug wreaked havoc on Washington's poor, predominantly black neighborhoods. In 1970 alone, the number of heroin addicts in D.C. exploded from 5,000 to 18,000 by the end of the year. Heroin led addicts to commit a rash of thefts across the city. In response, the government began a public health effort to expand treatment, offering methadone to addicts so that they wouldn't commit crimes to obtain heroin. At a local level, though, D.C. activists, neighborhood leaders, and community groups started on a much more radical anti-heroin campaign. Chief among them was Hassan Jeru Ahmed, a black nationalist. Hassan and his allies advocated for methadone to be dispensed only as a means of weaning addicts off heroin. As Foreman explains it, many of these activists, quote, believed that whites wanted blacks to be addicted to narcotics because it kept them passive. They viewed methadone maintenance as a thinly veiled attempt to keep black people oppressed. In order to protect black communities, some of these activists wanted to aggressively prosecute drug dealers, including black street dealers. These dealers were, quote, vilified for their complicity in the white-controlled system of racial exploitation, and they were framed as one of the greatest threats to D.C.'s black community. Heroin users also faced abuse from Hassan and other D.C. activists who advocated for punitive action against drug users. He also called for root cause solutions, like improving schools and fighting racism. Ultimately, Hassan's politics aligned with the tough-on-crime initiatives across the U.S. These grassroots initiatives ultimately led the city council and the community at large to reject Clark's marijuana reform bill. 
As we discussed in the second episode, the chain of events surrounding the heroin and cocaine epidemics led predominantly black and poor neighborhoods to adopt some of the harshest anti-crime policies and support some of the most anti-crime politicians in America. In this case, communities vilified both the drug dealer and the drug user. While media coverage of drug use and rising crime rates in cities stoked their fears, citizens and activists became increasingly hostile to lawbreakers and were willing to impose disproportionate sentences on those who broke the law. The moral panic concept provides one explanation for the success of tough-on-crime politics. Elevated fear and public consensus around crime, fed by the media, created a community-level push for these policies. Politicians capitalized on that support, hoping to gain power by following public sentiment. A fascinating 1998 study by Joseph Dylan Davey called The Politics of Prison Expansion, Winning Elections by Waging War on Crime, demonstrates the intertwined roles of fear and politics in the creation of today's prison system. Davey was unsatisfied by contemporary explanations for the growth of mass incarceration, and he decided to look at the relationship between politics of each state's highest executive official, the state governor, and the expansion of prisons within that state. Davey argued that the political climate within the state was a largely ignored and extremely significant factor in determining the state's imprisonment rate. In other words, Davey tracked what politicians relied on tough-on-crime rhetoric to stoke fears about criminal behavior, or what politicians were capitalizing on communities that were already panicked about the crime rate. He was tracking one indicator of moral panics. Davey went through existing data for factors like state crime rates, socioeconomic composition, even racial makeup, and found no consistent relationship between those factors and prison expansion. Instead, when he went state by state and examined governors and their politics, Davey found a consistent relationship between the states with tough-on-crime politicians in their executive branch and elevated incarceration rates. In his final chapter, he argues that public policy and the actions of politicians fueled mass incarceration. When state executives could either rally public support for expanding the prison state or prey on pre-existing public fears about the crime rate, they pushed for the expansion of incarceration. While moral panics aren't the only way to describe this relationship between politics and incarceration, they do provide a valuable way to understand how community members, public officials, and the media all contributed to the creation of today's prison state. Marcus Lilly also told me a little bit about a concept called public sociology the kind of activism and social science work that he describes in the following excerpt provides an excellent model for how we can use concepts like Foucault's panopticon and the idea of moral panics to better understand and aid people affected by oppression, as well as building more just societies. I once read this, this article, I believe it's called uh, Public sociology and it always stuck out to me i read it years ago for for an assignment in one of our college classes and i always i just love the 
the idea of it. It's it's um so the the concept from my understanding, the concept of public sociology is you have um most sociologists they um they're really not given incentive to come up with solutions to the problems that they research. Oftentimes they are really just giving that information to private organizations and those private organizations are supposed to come up with the solutions. But public in public sociology, it was a, a it was geared towards engaging the citizens in the community to become um, active participants and co-creators of their own change in a sense. So the idea would be that the the sociologists the, uh, would network with the universities, maybe the professors in the college and the church members or the community activists um, or the entrepreneurs that are in the community, all these business professionals or all these uh, 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 professors, et cetera. And they, in turn, would sit at the table with the people in the community and allow the people in the community who's having, who's going through certain issues to sit down and tell them how they see their own problems or their own wants and their own needs. And everybody at the table would come up with ways, with solutions. Now, I always felt like that type of collaboration like was needed was is needed with uh whether you say at risk youth or just the gang members or you know the incorrigible dudes the gangsters that they say is out there a lot of the a lot of them don't really want to do what they doing but they don't have that in my opinion they don't have that support you know i heard i had i had a guy tell me since i've been home that you know i wouldn't be selling drugs in front of this corner store if I was taught how to run this corner store or how to invest my money to get this corner store. I don't want to do this, like, but I don't know how to run this corner store. I know how to sit in front of it and sell drugs. So like that, I feel like the churches, the universities, all these institutions in the community should be networking with each other in a, at-risk youth in the community to come up with ways where we can get them off the corner or we can help them with their anger issues or we can help them with their family issues or we can help them with learning to, you know, value relationships or whatever the issue is that's, that these, you know, uh, roundtable discussions, you know, whatever issues are coming up with this certain individual. And, you know, they use their networks because if you got a church, you got a college, you got a, whether it be a barbershop owner or a dentist and a doctor that's in a, that has a dentist, dental shop or whatever in the community and they networking with the sociologists or the psychologists, like you got so many different people that's invested in helping this community member or these community members change 
you know, they have different networks. The dentists no more may know different people than the professor. So you, you, it's just, you have that collaboration of support from different institutions. And through that, you have these younger guys having role models or just feeling like, you know, somebody do love them. Somebody really want to see them change. And it's respected institutions that have the power to facilitate change in people. But oftentimes they're not involved or they just involved by themselves. And they feel like that's the only institution that can help instead of networking with all institutions and it become a community issue. So I, I always love that philosophy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Reformed. In our sixth and final episode, I'll share with you visions of criminal justice reform. I've asked everyone that I've interviewed over the course of this project how they would recreate the prison system if they could. I'm excited to share their responses, as well as a wide range of policy options and reform efforts from criminal justice advocates. If you're interested in reading more about some of the subjects covered on today's show, Check out Michel Foucault's Discipline and Punish, Prison and Social Death by Joshua Price, and the New Yorker article Hellhole by Atul Gawande, exploring the long-term effects of solitary confinement. As always, thanks for listening. As always, thank you to the band Broke for Free for the music used in the making of today's episode. Our theme song is their track XXV. You also heard samples from their song Summer Spliffs. Check them out online.